Welcome to the One City Church Podcast. Our mission is to help people draw closer to God by practicing the way of Jesus. We hope that your time with us blesses you and that you're able to see the invitations of Jesus to experience the love that he has for you. We have been on this series called Drawing Closer to God. And one of the things that we've been uncovering every week has been kind of like, what are those layers? What are those things that we encounter as we try to dive deeper in our relationship with God, which brings us um, to today's um, topic. And I've, So I wanted to start with this. When was the last time that you had a job interview? If you recall, for some of us it might be a while, some of us it might be very recent, but part of the process is to prepare a resume that tells a little about ourselves. It actually highlights our education, our achievements, our job experiences, and the things that might make us a good candidate for the job. The other part of the process is that it's the interview itself. We are asked questions and we try to show the best side of ourselves to leave a strong impression on the interviewer so that it would distinguish us from the other candidates so that we may have the best possible opportunity to get the job. Now, most of you have heard of the TV show called The Office. For those who haven't, it is a mockumentary um, about the lives of people that worked in a paper company called Dunder Mifflin. There were so many memorable moments in this show, some that were funny, others that were sad, some that were romantic, but those moments that were really cringy um, and we just couldn't look away. In one particular episode, Michael, the office manager, who's portrayed by Steve Carell, went to the corporate offices to interview for a position on the executive team of the company. Michael goes into the office of David Wallace, the CFO of the company, and the first question in the interview, David Wallace asked Michael, what do you think your greatest strengths as, are as a manager? And Michael responds, why don't I tell you what my greatest weaknesses are? I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I could be too invested in my job. After a pause, David Wallace, a bit confused, asks, and your strengths? And Michael responds, you see, my weaknesses are actually my strengths. And David responds with a smirk in his face, very good, very good. It's interesting to notice that in the world that we live today, we carry this posture of always needing to present the best version of ourselves everywhere we go. The pressures that we face to always put our best forward and never show any weaknesses can be exhaustive. In the middle of always trying to put our best forward, we lose ourselves. Our life becomes a never-ending search of trying to find ourselves. We look towards our jobs, our relationships, and even within ourselves to try to find who we truly are. But what, if, but what does finding ourselves really look like? And if we found it, would we even recognize it? The challenge that we face is that our souls become weary and tired searching for ourselves. A psychologist once shared in a talk that as humans, 
we're actually not born with the self. Our self is actually something that is built, something that's manufactured by us. Throughout our lives, we pick up traits, we pick up mannerisms, we pick up ideals and ideas from those that we admire and those that are around us. Picking up little things here and there, and that most of the time go without realizing it. So we create a self-image from where we operate from. But beneath the surface, we remain lost and confused with who we are. There is an inconsistency that we live by, which creates a duality within us. In other words, we're in public, we're one person, but when we're alone or with the people closest to us, we can be something completely different. We're on one side of the spectrum of being charming and beautiful and, and well put together, and on the other spectrum, we can be the worst version of ourselves. And this becomes a norm because we see it all around us. We go about our lives projecting that we are something when deep down our internal struggle make us feel lost and confused and act in a completely different way when we feel safe and when our guards are down. There's an inconsistency there. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he explains his struggles and the duality that exists within his own heart. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I, what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who does it, but it's a sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do. This I keep doing consistently. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. How many of us can relate to the honesty that Paul speaks about in this passage? I personally find myself relating to this verse quite often. I find myself wrestling with what feels like a ceiling at times in my spiritual walk that I'm always kind of going up against. There are things inside of me that I act upon that I know aren't good, and it creates an inner conflict, an internal frustration, wondering why I can't shake these um, certain patterns of mine. I live with the tension that's created from a desire to be a man after God's heart, but truly struggling with the sinful tendencies that I have that have a strong pull in my life. Most of us live our lives trying to just move forward, to achieve and to attain the next best thing that we rarely stop to think about and try to understand what this inner conflict is all about. Now, depending on how long you've been following Jesus, this duality is persistent in the hearts of every human. There's a duality that exists in the heart of every human being 
whether you're a believer or not. We walk a fine line between being aware of what's inside of us and being blinded by its existence. We need to be careful not to let the sinfulness define who we are, but we also need to be careful not to, des- not to deny that it exists, that it's inside of us. Because to deny it is to be blinded by an illusion that we're good and that we're perfect. Living our lives unaware of this duality can prevent us from truly seeing and being able to live in the kingdom of God. A desert father said this. He said, the closer you draw to God, the more you see yourself as a sinner. This saying is profound because it holds a paradox in our faith. The closer we move towards God, the more we come face to face with our sinfulness. In other words, with our brokenness. So therein lies the tension that we read about in Paul's words. We want to do what is good, but oftentimes we do what is not good. It's important for us to understand that if we're not aware of our brokenness, it's hard to become the people that we are created to be. Because it's in our brokenness, not in our strengths, where the glory of God shines the brightest in our lives. In other words, being aware of our brokenness can become the place where Jesus truly becomes alive in our lives. When our brokenness that exists within each of us remains hidden, it hinders our ability to develop depth and intimacy with Jesus. It keeps us in very shallow water, very superficial water. This obstacle, this duality that it's inside of us creates what is known as a false self. Thomas Merton, a Cistercian monk, said this, We are all shadowed by an illusionary person, a false self. He goes on to further explain that this false self is the person that we want to be, the person who wants to exist outside of God's will and God's love, outside of the reality, outside of life. When we grow up, life happens to us. Events that are mostly out of our control. But these events mold us. They shape us. They shape our hearts and the way in which we view the world. The really hurtful events, when they go unresolved, they create a deficit in us and remain to begin to shape who we think we are. For the most part, we all have different tolerances to physical pain, but when it comes to emotional pain, there is a fragility that exists in all of us. So the false self serves as a self-defense mechanism to protect us from being hurt. The false self and the ideal self that we present to those around us, the person that we want people to perceive, the person that is good, that's put together, that everything is in order, that there are no struggles and no challenges, we present a strong person, a strong version of ourselves. See, the false self is fueled by our belief that our deepest happiness will come from having control 
of our lives. That control will allow us to protect and prevent us from being hurt. So we ultimately begin to live our lives this way. But deep down lies a mistrust in God. Even though we surrender to His will, deep down we doubt that God is really capable of securing our happiness. The false self bases our worth on our image, on our jobs, on our education, on our clothes, on our money, cars, performance, success, and so much more. When it is triggered, meaning when it feels opposed or confronted, it poses, it postures, it spins, it hides, it defends, it judges, it deflects, it pretends, it manipulates, and it fears. Some of the ways that it disguises itself is through anger, through sloth, through envy, through deceit, to gluttony, pride, greed, fear, being cynical, and lust. The false self in all of us hinders us, prevents us, it holds us back from being able to draw closer to God. Because it ultimately prevents us, it, it makes us afraid to have any sort of depth and intimacy with Him. The false self makes us believe that finding God is ultimately up to us. But uncovering the false self, unraveling its many layers, is where we move from who we think we are to becoming who God has made us to be. That is the journey of the soul. That is the downward spiral. That false self is one of the challenges that we face as we try to develop depth and intimacy with God. The false self hides the hidden treasures that are found in the love and grace that God has for us. Blaise Pascal said this, God created man in his image and man returned the favor. Most of us at a subconscious level have created an image of God that is made up of teachings, experiences, personal interpretations, opinions, ideals, etc. We create an image of how God should be and how He should work in our lives. We create an image of God that makes us feel like He's controllable. For example, the image and the idea that we create of God, it's like we place Him in a box. Because subconsciously, that image or that idea that we hold of Him allow, allows us to feel like we're in control of our lives. See, controlling God allows us to protect ourselves. To be able to do what we want, when we want. And that's the nature of our sinfulness. We can really see this, like this really comes to light when we go through trials and challenges in our lives. Because we scratch our heads wondering, thinking, trying to find a logical solution to the problems that we face. So we go through every verse of the Bible trying to find an answer, yet something seems to be missing. 
There's like a misalignment. We seem to be missing the mark. The God we think about doesn't quite line up with our present circumstances. And if our faith and the foundation of our faith isn't strong enough, it usually points us to blame God and to walk away from the faith altogether. Or we can endure the challenges but grow resentful and grow bitter. Our image of God is created from the false self that's within us. We all do this. The false self always pulls us to believe that we are the protagonists of our life story. That we are the main character in our life story. So it naturally displays itself in our self-centered tendencies. That it's about me. That everything's about me. So the false self allows us to live our lives on surface level with those around us. At a safe enough distance from people being able to hurt us. The false self allows us to present ourselves in the best possible light in a way in which we are able to create a favorable impression and it boosts our self-esteem. At the core of the sinfulness of Adam and Eve is that they could be God without God. And because of our sinfulness, without God, we end up doing is making ourselves into a God. We end up thinking that this whole life is about us and us only. And it is in this, subtly, that the false self lures us and we end up living a lives that are just complacent. Where this is just good enough. I'm checking the boxes to be a good Christian. I'm checking the boxes to be a good person. We focus on success. We fill our schedule with Christian things to focus simply on ourselves. We live with an inconsistency of who we are, where we present to people something, but at home, we're something completely different. And at worst, those closest to us get nothing. We are emotionally, mentally distant. See, the false self leads us to live a life of self-reliance, one that preoccupies us to focus on success and sends us on a search to find God. This way of living blinds us from our true mission, that is, to live a life that is dependent and trusting of God. A life of fruitfulness. A life where God finds us. Our lives are not about success. They're about fruitfulness. Those are two different things. In the Bible, we can see the false self clearly in the lives of the religious leaders. Have you ever wondered why they couldn't see Jesus as the Son of God? Because the false self in their lives was built on all their religious understandings. Their understandings of the Scripture created an image of God 
that blinded them from actually seeing Jesus in their midst. Jesus fulfilling the scriptures that they were knowledgeable about. Even Peter, one of the twelve, one of the closest to him, showed a glimpse of the false self. Him and Jesus were talking. Let's just say they were having lunch over a fire. They were talking about what kind of death would be glorifying to God. And Peter asks, what about that guy? What about John? What's going to happen with that guy? What kind of death is he going to go through? And Jesus says, what is it to you if I have him live forever? Right, that was Peter. Like, I don't want to go through that. Like, that's going to hurt me. That's going to be painful. But Jesus just calls it out and says, hey, don't worry about that. What is it to you? If I can get really personal with you guys, for me, the false self comes out, it shows its ugly face in my arrogance. I say it's being confident, but it's my arrogance. I can be very critical of people. I can be very critical of even people closest to me. I can be very cynical. But for those that are the closest to me, when I truly act from the false self, it comes across in my sarcasm. I disguise it in my sarcasm and the way I joke around. Because my sarcasm comes across, it's actually put down humor. So what do we do when we become aware of our false self? Again, this message is not to cast any guilt or shame. It's just to bring awareness to one of the obstacles in our journey of the soul. Well, we look to Jesus to help us, to show us the way. Jesus knows very well the temptations that we face. He knows the fragility of our hearts that try to find worth and value in what we do. Knowing this, he came to show us a different way of living. A life where our value comes from the Father's love and is defined by our fruitfulness in our lives that is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus' teachings are not meant to change our behavior. Jesus did not come to try to make us better humans. Jesus came to help transform our hearts. Because Jesus cares about the human heart the most, above anything. So in Matthew verses 16, verses 24 through 28, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The answer for us 
is to follow in the way of Jesus. We are not here to be good Christians. The word Christian is actually used only three times in the New Testament. What we are called to do is to be disciples, followers. That word is used over 269 times in the New Testament. Jesus gives us an open invitation to follow him. Now, I don't have, because I want to be sensitive to time, I don't, have, I don't want to go through every single passage. As I was preparing for this, I'm literally only going to focus on the first, um, on the first sentence. About 20 words. That's what we're going to focus on right now. So the first set of words, if anyone wants to follow after me. It's interesting how Jesus chooses his wording. He's inviting us by leaving the door open and stating, if you want to follow. What happens when we're told what to do? There's a resistance. There's an inner resistance. If I were to say here, and I told you, you have to do this, internally you're going to be like, nope, why? I'm not going to. If you don't agree with it, you're going to be like, no, I don't want to. I'm not going to. So it's fascinating how Jesus opens it as an invitation. He isn't imposing his way or demanding that we must follow. Because this invitation pierces straight through the false self. And it goes straight into the core of our beings. It's like he's wooing us. By saying, if you want to. Like, hey, the door is open. Those words are liberating words to our hearts. Showing us the freedom that exists in following Jesus. So again, if we think about it, if Jesus were to demand us to go, most of us more likely would not. We would continue in our rebellious ways. We would be more stubborn, more prideful to do the opposite thing of what's being demanded of us. Jesus' words are loving. The simplicity that exists in God's design for our lives is what breaks through the illusion that the false self has created for us. Following Jesus, the ways of God are simple, but our human nature overcomplicates them. The simple truth is this. We can't find our true selves. We can only find our true selves in God and God alone. That's the simple truth that exists. Have you ever noticed how we can overcomplicate things. Jesus is aware that when we hang on to our sinful natures in our hearts and we're unwilling to let go and trusting Him, He's aware of that. He's aware that because of that pull, because of that attachment, we overcomplicate our lives. Which is why the second part of the verse um, he continues, he says, let him deny himself. Denying ourselves is not to let go, it means to let go of even our best 
and religious ideas. To let go of the concerns of trying to figure out our own salvation and to trust in the work that he's already done on the cross. To let go of the pursuit of success that we're so desperately seek to validate who we are and to simply receive the love that he offers that proves our worth. Self-denial is not so much about giving up things in our lives as much as it is giving up being in control of our lives. That's what surrender is. The next four words, take up your cross. This is also another form of self-denial. But the difference is, is that the first one, it's internal. It's a decision. It's something that we do inside of us. But where we're to pick up our cross is a public act. It's where we begin to carry ourselves different, differently. Not for appearance, but out of the love that we have for Jesus. This is where our lifestyles begin to change where we begin to let go of certain things that we know are hurtful for us, that go completely against the norm, even Christian culture. This is where our lifestyles begin to change. And yes, we're going to look different. We're going to feel weird and different because we're going up against the tide. It wasn't until recently where now I began to understand why people, individuals, go through certain extremes to censor themselves from listening to certain types of music, from watching certain types of TV shows, from reading, from even cutting themselves off from social media. These extremes that you're like, wait, how are you functioning in the world? Like, do you live under a rock? Because to certain people, these these channels are hurtful to their souls. They're hurtful to them. And they're saying, my love for Jesus is far more bigger than what anybody else thinks about me. So I'm going to make these decisions for myself because that's what my love for Jesus compels me to do. Acknowledging that we have our own cross to bear and a cross that we must pick up and carry is a truth that it simply isn't easy to swallow. It's uncomfortable. It takes humility to accept that I'm broken. It takes humility to accept that I'm selfish, that I am self-centered, and that I might not be the person that I think I am. This takes a lot of vulnerability. But it's in this vulnerability where Jesus meets us, where we can encounter him, where we can grow in intimacy with him. This is where the transformation happens. But it needs to happen with him first. There has to be a a time where we can learn how to be vulnerable with him first. The fruitfulness shows itself in our relationships with others. When we can learn to be 
to have depth and intimacy and open ourselves up with Him. Go into those depths. Our relationships with people will no longer be in the shallows. They'll start moving to the deep end. That's how that works. That's the fruitfulness. When Jesus says, follow me, this is a life that chooses to be devoted to him. Jesus doesn't want us to live a life admiring him and what he's done. The false self kind of leads us to believe like, hey, we're just here to admire that man because nobody could do what he did. Nobody can have that sort of relationship that he had with God. But his invitation is for us to live a life that imitates him. We are to move from admiring him to imitating him. Following him is imitating and doing what he did and living in the same intimacy that he lived with his father. Jesus knows that it's in intimacy where the transformation happens. It's in the depths where the transformation happens, where we find our true selves and where the fruitfulness is produced. Listen to his words in John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That is the smark of a disciple, our fruitfulness. The transformation is not meant to be kept with us. Right now, like in this message, in the next few weeks, we're going to, there's a transition that's happening. The first three weeks were about us in the silence. What does that prayer look like? Learning the language of emotion. But the transformation, the fruitfulness leads us to relationships. It must be shared. Loving God can, goes hand in hand with loving others. You cannot have one without the other. The false self wants to entrap us to just make it about me. I'm going to church for me. What does the church have to offer me? What does the message have for me? What does the worship music have for me? It's a consumerism. It's about me. It's about me. When we let that go and when we're aware of that, we say, okay, what do I have to give out of the Father's love? out of the transformation, out of the fruit. It, it just it naturally compels us to give. The purpose of our lives is to have depth and intimacy with the Father through Jesus. That is the purpose of our lives. To love God and love others. To love God and love others. We're on the journey of trying to learn, trying to understand what loving God looks like. Again, there's a complexity to us. Not one person is the same. And how it manifests, how the, the fruit of that looks very different. Because you have gifts, you have talents, you have abilities. You're a different person. And they're going to be expressed differently. So to end, I would just kind of want to talk about two ways, two spiritual practices that can help us 
unraveling, uncovering, and kind of going against this false self that exists within us. One of them is through Scripture. The Bible is the source of all truth. But who, it's how we internalize this truth that ultimately makes the difference in our lives. Think about Jesus. Jesus spent about 30 years in the dark. Nobody really knew. There's very, very little about his life in his, like, adolescent, right? We hear about him when he's 30, 33, and that was his ministry. But this man, if he, he grew up in a Jewish home. He knew the Torah. He knew the scriptures. And when we look at his life in the New Testament... On very few occasions do we hear him quote the scriptures. Right? But why were his teachings so powerful? Why was the way that he lived his life so powerful? Why did it leave such an impression on people? Because he lived out the scriptures. That's the difference. He knew the scriptures, but he lived them out. That's what made his life so powerful and so compelling. He wasn't talking about this is how God is based on the scriptures. He was showing it to people. God loves you. How did he show it? He touched people. He healed them. He prayed with them. He shared meals with them. He communed with them. He was around them. That was an expression of God's love. It wasn't like, go read it somewhere. Let me talk to you about what I know of God's love. He said, let me show you what I've been experiencing, what I've been living under. And guess what? You have access and availability to that same relationship. That is what the gospel is all about. That is what Easter is all about. The message that we have the ability and the availability to have the same relationship that he had with God the Father. We have the ability to share the same love to those around us. He says it. It's better that I leave because I'm going to send somebody, the Holy Spirit, and you're going to do things greater than I ever did. It's an expression of his love. So I want to encourage us. We can't read scripture like a book. There is too much depth in these words. We can't just go from right to left and and read the Bible in a year and check that off. Say, man, I've read the Bible from cover to cover five times. Okay, great. People don't care about that, especially those that don't know Jesus. Can we be the type of people who are living out the word of God and showing them what's in here through our actions? But it takes time. May I suggest that you take a paragraph and live in that paragraph for a week, for a month, for a year. That's what I do. 
Sometimes I'm in it and I'm like, God, I don't even know why I'm reading this. That's nothing to do with me. But I don't move until I feel the Spirit says, okay, let's move on to the next thing. I've never been a believer um, of words, like words of the year. I've never have. But last month I was, um, and I'm going to teach on it in a few weeks, but last month I was, um, a friend talked to me about a word in Hebrew, hest. That is the word that I'm living by this entire year. Actually, the rest of my life. Hest, and, and again, I want to do a teaching on it. I don't want to butcher it, but hest is the way that we read it, it's God's mercy. But the word mercy doesn't even begin to encompass the character of God. That's what hest is. Hest is God giving us not what we deserve, but giving us what we don't deserve because of his goodness. That's what the word hest means. And it's all through the scriptures, from the Old Testament to Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation. It's fascinating. That is what we're called to do. That is what loving God and loving others is all about. It's a mutual relationship. Hest. So under that spectrum, that's how I've been reading scripture. Oh my gosh, like, Psalm 51, I read it every day. God, be gracious to me. And the translation I have is according to your mercy. According to your grace. And now I'm praying, God, be gracious to me. According to your hest. According to your love. According to your you always give me what I don't deserve out of your love for me. Reading Scripture helps us when we're able to internalize it. The, God, the promises of God are good to hang on to, but they really come to life when we're able to live through them because they've come alive to us. We don't hang on to the promises of God of, as just quotes of things to just like, I'm going to tell myself to make myself feel good. No, they're meant for us to hang on to and cling on to, which means we might have to live in one of those promises for a long, long time for it to internalize, for us to be able to see it in our everyday life. Can I encourage us to walk slowly and invite the Spirit to show us the depths that exists in his word and not read the Bible just like a book. Not read his word, not come to his word to just, okay, I'm just going to spend five minutes and be done with it. But to be able to discover, discover the love of God. Discover who he is in this. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, we don't know more when it comes to Scripture. It's about becoming more. The second thing is community. It's community. It's a church community. This is why a church community exists. That's why you can't have people that say, yeah, I'm religious, but I don't like to do church. 
Jesus himself was amongst a community, a group of people. Why is that important? Because they help us see things that we can't see for ourselves. I was having a conversation with um, my friend Matthew here earlier about um, this. I think the, the, the church has, the word accountability has really sour taste in people's mouths, especially in the church culture. Because we use it as a way of kind of like, um, I think he said it, it was like the first line of punishment. Right? Like it's like, are you doing right or are you doing wrong? I thought it was such a great wording that he used. I wish I could take credit for it, but he's here, so I can't. Um, but the word accountability is supposed to be supportive, supposed to be encouraging. In other words, it's supposed to be loving. That's what a community does. Because when you're around people for a, an extended period of time, we can't hide ourselves. The true, like, the false self comes out and it helps shatter that but in a loving way, not in a condemning, not in a condescending way. It's supposed to be done in a loving way. A community is always meant to be an expression, a physical, a tangible expression of God's love by God's people, for God's people. Friends, the last three weeks, the last four weeks has been a journey about you, learning how to explore the depths of your heart, learning how to commune, how to speak, how to, the language of emotions, how our emotions can help drive us into the depths of our heart. Now it's time for us to open ourselves to those around us. Easter is four weeks away. I want to encourage you, particularly with this community piece, that one day a week, for one meal, you plan it to have it around people that are close to you. If you're married, let it be your spouse. If you have kids, let it be a family. If you're single, find some single friends or find a date. But be intentional about this time. Share a meal, have a dinner, have a breakfast, have a lunch, and circle around the question of what is Jesus doing in your life? Let that be open-ended. Because that question will meet anybody wherever they're at. But that is an opportunity to hear people, for you to share with people, to start getting out what's happening inside to those around you and begin to see the healing power that community, that time over a dinner table begins to have. That, my friends, is my vision for this church. The reconciliation is going to take place in our dinner tables. It's not going to happen here. When God works a revival, it's not just for a church. It's for an entire city. That is my vision for this church. That is why I've been spending for the last almost nine months trying to teach you about the inner journey, how to speak to God, how to, how to sit in the silence. 
so that it begins, the fruitfulness begins to spill out into your relationships. And for you to start moving to the margins and inviting people to share a meal with you. That is how reconciliation is going to take place in and through this church. People are tired. People don't want any more sermons. They don't want any more podcasts. They don't want any more information. They want to know if Jesus is real through you, through me. That's what's going to change lives. You have the power of the Holy Spirit to be an agent for Jesus where you're at. But oftentimes, the hardest field to plow is our own. But that is where I believe God wants this, the people of this community to start. So let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for just this time together. I want to pray a blessing over us. Lord, may you anoint us with your spirit. May you fill us with your spirit, God. This journey of the soul isn't easy. It's challenging. But Lord, would you just remind us through a simple act of of you, God, through people, through a word, through a a prompting, whatever it is, Lord, to just remind us that we're seen, that you're there with us and that we're not alone, that we are forever your children, that we are loved, and in us you are well-pleased simply because of who we're becoming in and through you, Jesus. So, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen.